Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to a podcast yeah, from the world. He looks at me and goes, you've told this already. <laughs> yeah. so that's, uh, We're going to get sued. Yeah, no, no it's, it's repeating myself is the, is the, is the main problem uh, with these things. Mm. So, um, mm. Fraser, yes. you still haven't told me about going to the Himalayas. I went to the Himalayas. Give us the, give us the high point, <laughs> <laughs> I get it, of the Himalayas. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you an odd story. I, was, um, I, was, uh, I, had, I hired a guide to take me around the Himalayas five days and he was uh, a typical kind of Gurkha five foot three size four feet um, incredibly incredibly fit and he said he had a problem buying clothing because elderly youth in Darjeeling these days wear hip hop gear baggy pants hanging off them and he can't wear them and so we climbed this uh, the highest point which is about 3,600 metres a place called Sandak Fu beautiful views of Everest and, and uh, Kenshinjoga guy serving dinner there and he has pants around his ass and a two-pack T-shirt on, 13,000 feet up. Oh, that stuff, that stuff gets everywhere. It gets yeah. everywhere. I, I, when, when Fraser was, was in the Himalayas, he texted me and said, I'm in the Himalayas. And I said, I won't believe you unless you send me a picture of you with a Himalaya. <laughs> and you texted back and said, the visibility is so bad, I might as well be in the Mendips. I did, yes. Uh, which I thought was rather funny. This is a word podcast. Special guest, Phil Smee. Hello there. Yes, Good afternoon. Hello. Don't be shy. <laughs> and uh, Phil is going to talk to us. We're going to talk about oldies and rare records yeah. and repackaging and all that kind of stuff, which is, I suppose, occasioned by a feature in the current issue of Word, um, which I wrote, uh, which is triggered by the Mike Reed auction. You know, where, when his his raiment was divided amongst the, you know the record collectors in order to pay his tax bill. We'll get into that. Wait, Phil, we have we have a custom here. Uh, on the podcast, people tell us about what records, if any, their parents had in their house when they were growing up. Okay, do you remember? I do remember. Yeah, yeah. My my mum and dad were rock and roll fans, and uh, but interesting enough, we only had a seventy eight record player. We didn't have a a, 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 a one that played forty fives until I was about ten, I think. So I do remember my dad coming home with with new um, new seventy eights and. Because he rode a motorbike, he used to put a string through him and wear him around his neck. So when he took his coat off, I could, uh, you know, we would sort of see which records he'd bought. So he string yeah. through the hole? Yeah, around his neck. Like a big medallion, yeah, exactly. like a guy out of public <laughs> exactly enemy. Exactly right. With, uh, with his motorbike leathers over the top. 
And uh, I remember he used to get off his bike and come in and unzip, and we'd see what he'd bought. And um, what had he brought? Can you work in? It was that? A, it was a regular stuff, you know, um, Tommy Steele and uh, um, Paul Anker and uh, Elvis Presley, that kind of stuff. You know, Chubby Check, I remember. So what was the romance of vinyl planted very, very early? Yeah, I, I mean, I, there were certain ones I loved, and as soon as we got a, a proper um, two-tone dance set, you know, two-tone leather dance set, then we... I remember the day we bought it, we had to uh, all... My sister and, and my mother, and, and we all went out, and we bought a record. We, we chose a record each, and I still got that record. Which was? Wild Wind, John Layton. John Layton, produced by... RGM, Joe Meek. Joe yeah, Meek, yeah. I think it has features in the, the very beginning of the of the Joe Meek yes. biopic that came yeah. out yeah. not long ago. Extraordinary. Yeah. Now, the two-tone, the two-tone, I'd forgotten that they were referred to as two-tone, two-tone leather dancer. Yeah, well, the vinyl, <laughs> probably oh, yes. fake leather, but it yes. was, yeah. And, uh, and what were the actual features of that? Of course, those things, am I right in saying they had a handle? Yeah, of course, they, they were carrying portable in the sense that you could pick it up and... What they did, they, they had a fantastic system because stereo hadn't really caught on. It hadn't, we wouldn't catch on for another two or three years, really. But they had built in a stereo feature that you could buy another box. I did that myself. Yeah, and you could plug it in. And the, the, the little box was two-tone as well. And, uh, and it was like an extension, wasn't it? Like an exactly. extension to yeah. your house. And, they and had then you have a huge <laughs> lead going across your living room. That's right. But it was and the miracle of stereo. Yeah, and you had separate tone and volume on each box. Oh, yes, you did. So you sat in the middle listening, and he said, oh, that's too low. And you had to go across and turn that one up, and you get back. It was like throwing the legs off a table, you know. Can you remember, what were the records that... Um in the early days of stereo, that you used to sh- you used to show off stereo to yeah. your amazed elderly grandparents yeah. or something. There was always, you know, in those days you used to have panning, didn't you, on yeah. every record? So there were there were some demonstration records which we we all bought, and I remember one had um, tennis on it or ping pong. <laughs> oh, right. I, yes, it did, uh, and uh, it had um, things like uh, well, cars going past and um, nothing nothing terribly subtle. No, it was it was really over there or over there. Okay. It, was, it was also how to set up your speakers so that yeah, they were right. in phase, weren't they? Yeah. Because you had yeah. two leads to the yeah. speakers. Yeah. And, well, you still do, mm. don't you? You can't afford to yeah. have them out of phase. That's extraordinary stuff. Yeah. So how did you professionally get involved in the music business? Well, I was a... Um, I was a I, I, you know, I collected records from my 10th birthday, really. So every birthday, every Christmas relations, family, all bought records. That's me. all you wanted? That's all I wanted. Um, and, uh, and I've still got them all. Obviously, I never, I've never given anything away or sold anything. Seriously, nothing? Um, a couple of doubles, which were worth quite a lot, I, I did get rid of. But you never, not like Fraser and myself, you never left anything at a party or no. lent something to a girl and never no. got it back? No, no. That shows. No. Did you, do you think you're aware of the value of these things from no, an early not, age? Not at all. I, 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 I was always... I just love the... Now, obviously, we, we, we can get into collecting a little bit later, but, you know, the psychology of collecting is very interesting. And, and if you delve too deep, it's a, it's a crazy way of, of life. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have, make any sense at all, you know. But um, I just... I, I, I never, I've never got rid of anything. I mean, this is, the, this is my problem, really. You know, I've got magazines, enemies. Um, I've got everything, really. And, unless it's fallen apart. I've still got it, you know. Really? And uh, my my uh, and I just moved into bigger houses. Right, right. <laughs> so go on. How did you get into the music business? Well, I, I was designing books. For, when I left art school, I was de- designing books, and um, for a London company. And I really just uh, carried on this sort of sideline of um, collecting, you know, collecting, collecting. 
until the day I was designing a book for a, a new author called Richard Price, whose first novel was just being published. And this is the Richard Price who would later become a big... Uh, Very well-known. ...screenwriter, yeah. And his first book was called The Wanderers, and it was about a, a New York gang, <clears throat> and it was based on his, his youth. He was, it, was, it was autobiographical. So I went out to get a record to put on the back of this. I needed it for my design. I needed a copy of The Wanderers, and I went to Rock On in Camden and, uh, and asked for this. And Ted, who's Ted Carroll, who ran the shop... This is the place just by the tube. It's right by the tube, yeah. Is it still there? Was no, that, no, I don't think it is. Gone no, no. But he also had a stall in the uh, in, um, little market behind uh, Chinatown, um, behind Daddy, uh, behind, what's it called, the jazz shop um, off Chancross Road. Anyway, I asked for this, and he looked at me and said, why, why do you want this? This is not psychedelic. You, you buy psychedelic. And I said, no, I'm a designer. I want to use it for a, a thing I'm doing. He said, oh, that's interesting. I'm starting a label. Are you interested in doing some work for it? Well, that was, you know, sweet to, to, the, to the fat kid. So I, uh, I said, yeah, no problem. So we, we met up, and he told me what he was setting out to do, and we got stuck in, and we, I did sort of 50s albums. We did the first Motorhead album. I did the logo for that. I designed that. And, um, well, you, are you telling me you designed the Motorhead, the Motorhead logo? logo? I got 30 quid for doing that. 30? You? <laughs> and, That's uh, arguably the most famous band logo of the yeah. world, isn't it? I've, the seen, I've seen a picture of Madonna jogging in Central Park with that logo on a T-shirt, and I'm thought... Oh, did, did they come to you with umlauts, or did you put those on? I put those on, and you know... You know Take that? us through the process. We want to know the day that you it's, did this. It's, it's, Take us... It's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Go on. No, no, no. I, was, um, I used to use what was called Letraset. Yes! Which was sticky-down letters. Now, you bought Letraset on a, on a sheet of um, plastic... And, uh, very expensive. It was very expensive. And what happened was you always ran out of letters. Yes. Normally E's or, uh, you know... <laughs> Fowls. Fowls. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I started doing this logo on a piece of card. I think it was the back of a cornflake packet or something. And I, I drew the line. I started doing M-O-T-O. And the two dots came off. Because when you rubbed it down, uh, sometimes if it had an accent of it, it would come off as well. And I thought, I'm going to leave that. Because it looks quite... Germanic yeah, weird yeah, yeah, yeah. so then I did so I left that then I did the H I didn't have an H so if you look at the Motorhead logo you'll see that the H is actually an L and the second bit of a W upside down the, the, the long bit of the H is far too long so it's just improvised I improvised it and I finished it off and I, and I you know we, we did the whole thing and um, I got 30 quid credit in the shop I didn't even get <laughs> So you spent it on the old psychedelic I, I would have probably spent it on a chocolate watch band album or something, yeah. That's extraordinary. Mm. So mm. when are we talking about? 1976, 77? Yeah, yeah. And so you designed mm. one afternoon. What is it? It's a logo one that's evening, still, because well, I, I still goes around yeah. the world, doesn't it? Now? Yeah, and they have changed it over the years. You know, they've actually... Um, they use a real H? Yeah, they do. Uh, unless you see the first albums, they've kind of used... Obviously not realising I either couldn't get that, that face or just couldn't match it you know so it has changed but the, the main one that's still on the original albums that's the one i did you know. so this presumably still has a value albeit you don't share it yeah. you know presumably you know if you look at the heritage of motorhead the logo is probably as worth as much as the music well isn't it, it is isn't it when you think about it, it it is it was their shop window it was their identity and and, and a true logo because you know we're talking about time when people really didn't have logos no you know 
Um, what were the first logos? What were the first band logos? I mean, well, the Beatles had a logo. They kind of had a logo. And it's only because it was on the drum head, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And, they didn't um, really use it, did they? No. I think the Rolling first... Stones never had a logo, did they? No, the, the first... Until the tongue came along, I guess. The tongue, yes, when they had a label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the first logos, I think, um, I'm, I might be wrong, but I think not, is, um, were done by a designer called Bill Harvey at Electra. Now, he had an idea... The all doors. bands should have logos. Yeah. And he did The Doors, Love, um, Clear Light, Ars Nova, all those bands. He, he gave them logos, yes. which he repeated on the labels. Yeah. And I think he was the first one. Yeah, because he, um, he brought a bit of traditional branding thinking he to... He did, because he was in advertising. Right, and so, so yeah. yeah, into psychedelia. Yeah. Where it, so, so yeah. you're working for Ted Carroll. Yeah, so doing, I started doing that. logos at night, going for the credit. Yeah, so then we obviously we spread out, because he, he then ended up with... Um, we, we, I worked on The Damned, you know, I did all that stuff, and I, and I started getting other jobs from other independents, like Stiff. So I did some madness, I did stuff... Um, Clash. Which madness did you do? Anything oh, we we'd did. know? We, we did a. I remember we did an album, um, kind of a best of album. I did a couple of singles. I, I, this was all going through in the evening. I was still doing my my book designs in, in working for Collins in the in the day, and um, all sorts of people. We did everything from Dex's Midnight Runners through to the Meteors and and all sorts of people. <clears throat> and then um, and meanwhile, I'd started my record label. Because I did like the, the punk and the, the whole thing, so we started this local label called, called Waldo's Records, which we had the T set and the Bears and um, people. Uh, so when are we talking about here? At 78, 77, 78. So, right, okay. And then uh, on my 30th birthday, I decided that I'd rather do this than, <laughs> than design books, so I went freelance. And I've been freelance ever since, so that's really uh, how it all began through Ted looking at a record I was buying and wondering why I was buying it. So you, you got your own record label, so you yeah. must have made a fortune. No. My accountant... Um, <laughs> Seriously not. He got me to wind it up at the end of the 80s, because like, we turned it into Bam Caruso, which was our reissue label. And um, we also put a lot of new bands out. Um, and at the end of the of the 80s, just beginning of the 90s, I remember my accountant saying to me, I think you ought to wind it up. He said, "We, I'm, I'm getting... I get so many letters from the Amber Revenue saying... You, you cannot you must be made on profit by now he said they, they're not they don't believe us anymore and I and I really yeah, I'd lost a lot of money so I think over the, over the so 10 record, years so record company is a good way to lose money you, I think we lost about 20,000 over 10 years how do you so lose good. it well we made we put records out at the time people didn't buy it was quite easy really in fact we put one record out we did, I did a reissue of a Mandrake paddle steamer scene ah the old Mandrake the old Mandrake steamer uh, no I've never heard of them uh, well it was a great, a great collectible single we, and I did such an elaborate package that when I worked it out it cost me one ninety two to make the record and we were selling it at a 170 dealer you know so I was but that's the famous story isn't it about um, the New Order's Blue Monday isn't it that they, they lost money on every sleeve they, they designed this Peter Savile did this mm. fantastically beautiful sleeve mm. with all the barcodes on it or whatever and they lost a pound every time they sold yeah. it and it's the biggest selling 12 inch single of all time isn't it you know so so lavishing you know the, the yeah, money I'm, and uh, love on those things yeah. doesn't doesn't no it was um, doesn't work in, if you want to make money no I always justified by saying it. it was a hobby that got out of hand that's really all it was right, right. my main job was always been designing and I've always that's what I've done you know so so you um, mentioned the damned earlier on yeah. were you responsible for the uh, the first damned no. album with the mistake on the back cover no oh, that, what that, was that yeah, yeah that was no that was that was um, people like Chris Gabrin and Barney Bubbles were yes, were yes. doing stuff for Stiff I took over 
on uh, Smash It Up and um, Machine Gun. Okay, because yeah. the, the, the first album, the picture of the band on the back wasn't The Damned, it was Eddie and the Hot Rods from the first present. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It was intentional. They, they, it was intentional? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, it was... That I never yeah. knew. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Do you remember the double-page advert that Stiff took in the NME the week that The Damned album came out? Never forgot this. So it was the only bit of imaginative record company advertising I've ever seen. Spread, and it just went, The Damned, play it at your sister. <laughs> just huge grey white type on black you know, play it at your sister I think it was a moment of inspiration probably from Jay Rivera mm-hmm. so you, yeah. did you work with the, with the legendary Barney Bobbles well no what happened but I, 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 we did we were working on the same labels uh, unfortunately you know, Barney uh, as you know committed suicide and um, then I started doing having to do what he was doing so for instance I started doing Elvis Costello at that point because <clears throat> in fact no, I actually started just before he committed you know um he 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 he's a wonderful designer. He he put some wonderful sleeves together. And he had uh, such a an, uh, a recognisable look, but I think at the time that look wasn't really suitable for what uh, for the for the for the bands and the art, the artists he was designing for. But he was he wouldn't change. He he wanted it to be as he envisaged it. And unfortunately, they um, he started getting rejections. You know, people started saying, "No, this is not right." Right. And that's why I got. They said, "Well, you have a go. You start doing Elvis's new album because we don't like what he's done." And right. he took it really badly. Uh, be, be frank. Were you a bit more cooperative? I'm very malleable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, have no, you found that's a useful thing when yeah, dealing with I, I, artists? I, I think if you've got if you if you've got a particular style and you adhere to that style and you don't change, then you're really cutting down your uh, your market quite a bit, aren't you? You know, if you only right. do certain things. No, I mean, I will do. I have a style. I have a, a kind of recognisable. People often say, "Oh, I knew that was one of yours," you know. But right. um, no, it, it was really, really narrow. His style. It was. So, so generally speaking, with artists, do they come in and say, "I want it to look like this"? Mm-hmm. Just go away and do it, or are um, they looking for ideas or what? No, most people. I, I, with rare exceptions, most people give you a completely free reign. You know, it, it's down to me to come up with something n- different, new, something that's. You know that you, you've not seen before. I mean, it gets harder and harder over the years. <laughs> but you know, it depends on what photographs you've got and the, the title of the album. It's very inspirational. The title of an album, you know. You, you must find this huge contrast to um, working in the world of books, which always strikes me in mm. books. You know, you always have the title of the book, mm. it's very obvious, yeah. and the writer of the book, yeah. and usually a press, mm. you know, mm. credit and, uh, and the price and so forth. Mm. Whereas I'm, I'm constantly amazed mm. at the number of CDs I get sent where you can't decipher any information whatsoever. Yeah. It is, it's There's nothing on the front. Yeah. You know, and, and in, the, in the days of CD, where you no longer have label copy, mm. if the CD gets separated from its jewel case, yeah. you've no way of reuniting. No. The things at all, yeah. you know. It's it, it's a kind of a sliding scale. Obviously, the, the the more the better known you are, you know, the, the more um, liberty you can take with with the way it looks. I mean, for instance, Bjork can c- get away with you know, just a, a strange design or black type on a black background, and a, because people buy that stuff anyway, they they really. Uh, whereas other people, if you if if it's important that you can see who it is, you know, you've got to be pretty obvious who it is. You know, yeah, yeah. You've got to say up front, but. So you, 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 you're helped in this work, presumably, by the fact that you, you've got a massive... As you say, you never chucked anything away. Yeah. So you've got sort of endless reference, haven't yeah. you, presumably? Yeah, well, so, and, and, and I add to it, you know, because I, obviously I still buy records. Uh, I still buy things to complete my collection, missing items. <laughs> um, 
I don't I don't go to second hand shops and, and, and go through boxes at Jumble Stones. I've, I've stopped doing that a long time ago. But you had a time doing that. I think everyone does, doesn't they? You, you can't... There was a time I couldn't walk past an Oxfam shop. If I saw a box of records, I'd just have to go in and have a quick look. I mean, 99 times out of 100, there'd be nothing there. But occasionally, you know, you'd see, oh, hang on, that's, uh, that's nice. Grab that, you know. So what sort of things have you picked up? Oh, I, I did pick up... Um, uh, a bunch of of uh, beat singles in Oxfam that someone obviously just taken in in a box. You mean beat groups? Yeah, you're you know, right. Um, bands like the Hollies and <clears throat> and those sort of bands. But of course, there was uh, maybe someone had gone to university. I don't know. It was back in the <laughs> mother in the of 70s. Them out, yeah. yeah, and they all had the, the the girl's name on the top, and it was fantastic. So beautiful condition. And although I had a lot of them. There was uh, a lot of the unusual singles by Unit 4 Plus 2 and the Foremost, all those. So I really, you know, I grabbed the whole lot, the whole box. You know. now, you brought in a mm. few, uh, you brought in, it sounds like <laughs> Antiques Roadshow. You know. Yeah. Uh, you, you brought in a few, uh, a few old 45s, mm. lovingly kept in plastic, mm. transparent, um, dust mm. covers. Yeah. Like, you know, Fraser and I, we don't know the foresights to do things <laughs> like that. And, um... I'm gonna, I'm gonna. We, this makes great radio. This, and I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna pick this one off the top here, and and I'm gonna, you know, pose to the listening public. I wonder if they know what makes this record rare. It's copy the Beatles' "Let It Be." It's no doubt in beautiful condition, but it's on Parlophone. Go on, Phil, tell us. <laughs> well, of course, it's, it was the first release on, on Apple, but. For some reason, and it could have been a genuine mistake, it, it, or I imagine it was, the promo copies were pressed up on Parlophone, on the Parlophone label, and sent out. Uh, which is, uh, means it's, it's, uh, it's unusual, because if you're used to looking at records, that record does not belong on a Parlophone label. You know, as soon as you look at it, you think, there's something wrong with this picture. You know? But the average person might be sitting with something like that in their attic and wouldn't realise there's anything unusual it, about it at all. It's probably unlikely, because they were, they were only promos, so they were only sent out to a few uh, DJs and people. So what's your guess as to how many copies of that that I've got in my left hand mm-hmm. that might have been pressed? Well... This is interesting, because the whole thing about collecting, we've got a lot of records here. Um, something like that, I've got no idea. I do remember talking to one of the reps at EMI who was around in the 60s, and he told me that they used to do about 700 A labels for advance on right. any record. Well, that's where you used to see A, a, a. Pr- overprinted yeah. on the single, yeah. didn't you? And he said, and, and the reason we, we had 700, because about 100 would go out to, uh, to, D- to DJs and, and radio stations and stuff. And the rest would go to shops, and they would take them in and give them five or six of these and say, this is the new record by whoever it is. Pretty obscure stuff, usually. And um, the next week, they would see how many they got left. Now, if they still got them and hadn't sold them, then it would probably not get pressed up. So the A labels would be the only I mean, ones. The only ones, yeah. but obviously not the yeah. case in the in, in the case of the No, Beatles, I would imagine there's quite a few of those. But, but it's still it's that kind of thing mm. that makes something rare. It's the fact that it it wasn't really pressed for commercial release and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that is one aspect of, of collecting. It's the it's the uh, um, promo, uh, advanced copy, test pressing sort of area. So, and the next one I've got here is a copy of is another Beatles single again on Parlophone, and this is "If I Fell," mm. which, according to my memory, they never put out as a single. No, that's right. And um, what's interesting with that is, of course, around the world, 
different tracks were chosen as singles in America, uh, everywhere, every country chose different tracks. Um, and that particular record came out in Scandinavia, in Finland and, um, and Sweden, but was pressed in England. So it looks so like an English looks, record. It's an English record. It is an English record. It was made in, and shipped out. So you get a lovely uh, regular parlophone pressing of If I Fell, you know, which is... Um, so that, that's the kind of thing that would be evident to, you know, to somebody who knew a lot about records. They'd look at this and they'd, they'd know... I used to work in a record shop, so I know. Mm. I can pick up a record and I know this was a British pressing. Yeah. You, know, you can yeah. just tell you know, without looking at matrix numbers yeah. or whatever. Mm. Whereas most people wouldn't see that they, kind of no, thing. No, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, bat an eyelid, as they yeah. say. But it's... Um, there were about... There's about um, six or seven different ones. They're all fairly hard to get, and uh, I suppose they, they may be around in Finland still. <laughs> yeah, they might be. Finnish jumble sales. Yeah. The next one that I've picked off the, off the pile mm. here is on the Trojan label, the mm. reggae label, mm. and it's, a, it's by Millie, mm. of my boy Lollipop fame, but the song's called Mayfair. Mm. Now, what should, what's remarkable about this? <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, written by Nick Drake. And Nick Drake, the Nick Drake, Drake reggae hit. He wrote a reggae hit, but you know. uh, complete flop. But he, um, the only cover version of any of his tracks recorded while he was alive, and it turns out to be a reggae version of Mayfair, which he didn't actually have on one of his albums. It was a track he'd written and um, was taken up by. Um, I mean, obviously Trojan. The, the, you know, we've got the connection with Island Records. Yes, yes. Chris Black, which is why she obviously got hold of it. Um, and it didn't come out by him until he actually died, and it was on one of the compilations. <clears throat> um, but nevertheless, it's uh, she turned into a, a rather pop reggae uh, and version. And see, it's arranged by Robert Kirby, who died uh, yeah, recently. Absolutely, who, yeah. Breaks yeah. College yeah. mate, who yeah. was his. Um, yeah. and it's, it's it's not that valuable in that it, the records, you know, you can find them, but. Um, I think one of the reasons it's, it is kind of valid is that a lot of people don't even know it exists. Right. If they knew about it, I think they'd be after it. So if you were to put that on eBay tomorrow, mm. which you're not going to do, no. what's, your, what's your starting price? Um, well, I think, I think uh, whatever you started at, it, it would end up, something like that on eBay, given the, given the right uh, description and name-dropping like mad, Nick Drake, Nick Drake, you know, I think you'd probably only get up to about 60, 70 songs. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's, okay. But, but because that's, that's quite rare in the sense that there can't be ma many manufactured. No, I don't. And it's it, lasted, you know, 40 years since. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's scarce rather than, um, right, right. than collectible. But it's... Because it doesn't sound like Nick Drake, you know. Yeah. So do you get people coming up to your parties and say, oh, you've got a lot of records? Oh, I've got a load of... They always say... I've got a load of vinyl indoors. <laughs> yeah. Not that's what they always say. <laughs> We've got it in the attic somewhere. Yeah. I must have stuff that's worth yeah. more. I always get the feeling that people think that their old records are worth a lot of money. Mainly because they're old. Yeah. I, I suppose so, yeah. And, uh, and they start to look quaint after a while, mm. don't they? You know, because so many people got rid of things. Yeah. What's but, your experience? Well, I, um, well, two things. One, one, people tend not to see my records because I've got a... Um, I'm very lucky because I've got a big enough house where I've got a whole floor, which is just mine which is uh, the third floor on my house. and it's whole floor? Yeah. How many rooms are we talking here for? Well, three and a half rooms, but right. they're knocked together into a great big L. It's, it's, and it's, so it's a library effect. It, well, it's a library up there. It's a library. It's also Have you got a large studio. quilted chair that you sit there in, in a dressing room of an evening, chair. sipping port and having a <laughs> cigar? I actually do have a very old... your old Millie records. Yeah, I do have an old chair up there, but it's, a, uh, it's also my studio, so that's where I work all right. day, and I've got... Uh, 
most of my records, unfortunately, I can't get them all up there. There are some downstairs in, in what we call our, our kind of a front cinema room type thing, but there's some in there as well. Um, soundtracks I keep down there. But, um, <laughs> but but we don't live amongst them, which is often what you find with a lot of record collectors is you walk into the front door and it's pretty obvious that you've entered the, the hallowed halls of a collector. You know, they're everywhere. But our house looked quite normal. <laughs> what's the, the, what's the worst case of a collector you, whose house you've visited? What's the worst case of somebody just utterly overwhelmed by um, stuff? Well, mine used to be... Uh, a lot worse when I lived in a smaller house before I moved, but uh, there are people. I remember uh, this thing, Andrew Lauder. I think it's got to be Andrew Lauder. Oh, formerly yeah. of United Artists yeah. and the uh, yeah. great A and R man, Doctor Feelgood. And yeah. Okay. He, yes. he 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 actually went to the the lengths of having proper shelves made to order. You know, so his his whole place looked very uh, much like a. You know, he he sort of took it seriously enough. He didn't have things in boxes or on the floor. No, you know? they were all on proper shelves yeah. in proper thick plastic. Yeah, in A to Z. You know. And how many have you got? Do you? Oh, do you, you know. don't know. You see, I've got boxes. I mean, some what I what I did get done um, some time ago is all the really rare groups that I collect. <clears throat> I um I got uh, a bookbinder to make me up volumes of books, bound books with pockets in. And uh, they each hold about 20 singles. And I've got 400 of these just for my main collection, the gold embossed spine. So it looks like a library. So things like the Beatles and the Monkeys and, uh, you know, Jetson Airplane and, and every, all the main stuff, you know, they're all in these, um, in these binders. But then I've got endless boxes, shelves, CDs. So is it mainly singles? No, it's mostly albums, I think. I've got mostly albums. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands. Do you insure them? No, no. I just They're assume... They're hard to insure, I think, aren't they? I, it's very difficult to put a price on. You could sort of value this little part we've got on the table, and I think it, the premium you have to pay, you know, to insure something like that. I mean, I don't know what... what I've not really added. I was going to do it on the train, but I, I, even if it's maybe six, eight thousand, just for that little pile, it's not worth it. Who's going to... Who would know what to take? I always think it would take them a week to even look through them. And yes, then, yeah, and, and I'm sure to notice there'd be someone there by then. You know, it might be a good uh, good fiction idea. You know, in the kind of gentleman uh, records thief. You know, as a connoisseur who knows exactly what he's after. He'd come in, come into your house at dead of night and steal the Thane <clears throat> Russell single and nothing else. You wouldn't get yeah. anything had gone. I probably would never notice it. This is the thing. The word, a magazine, a website, a podcast. A way of life. So, you say you made a particular specialism of uh, psychedelia. Where did that start? Well, yes. Uh, sorry, art school, I suppose. Yeah, I was at, at, at art school in my late teens. Um, I, I do notice now, of course, when I speak to people, when we're do, doing different reissues and we're doing different packages, I'm working with the guys at the record companies, and, and then we're talking maybe about the Pink Floyd. In fact, we um, they did a repackaged their first album recently at EMI and, and um, I was asked if I had one of the records because they'd lost the tape which was the French EP which I think I've got in this pile somewhere down the bottom there and uh, because they didn't have a tape could they borrow my EP to dub from and, and that bit you know so um, uh, and then of course when I got chatting to the guy you know, and I said well Pink Floyd yeah I remember seeing them play Alexandra Palace in 1967 and the sun coming up and you can see them doing the maths 
Think, hang on, if you were there in 1967 watching the sun come up while they... You've got to be at least, you know, <laughs> ching. And, of course, now I've got that point of, well, I, should I keep mentioning this now? <laughs> oh, I think because, you should. I um, think you should. So do you find mm. where well, you, you work on loads of uh, repackages mm. for record companies, of old stuff, mm. do you find that they know what they've got, record companies? Um, they? They're, they're pretty, they're pretty uh, pleased when we point out what they've got, um, because they don't always know. And, of course, there's no way of knowing until you go into the archives, obviously, and, uh, and have a look. Um, particularly when it becomes uh, when you're looking at the unissued side of stuff um, there's all sorts of things not always that well documented as well you know sometimes you have to play the tapes to find out what's on them so give us an example of something where you've taken on a project and you actually got gone down into the into the archives with a well Sid Barrett we right. did the big Sid Barrett box for, for EMI we did um, we did an album called Opal first which was kind of unissued stuff you know uh, like a third album and then we went back and had a good look through, and we found whole tapes. Um, so you, was this, you went to EMI Hayes? As it was. Right, yeah. okay. And, well, they, they pulled them all out for me, everything that was anything to do with Sid Barrett. Um, and then we put them on the, the uh, onto, up, brought them up onto the board, you know, and, um, and played through them. And they kept whizzing through, and every time I heard a little speeded up squiggly sound, I'd say, stop, go back. And they said, well, it's only him speaking. It doesn't matter. We'll have it. That's what we want. We want him speaking. <laughs> we want Sid Speaks, you know. So, um, uh, and there, were, there was lots of different takes, as there always are on those sort of things. You know, so unless, on the, on, the, on the real box, it probably said, you know, one octopus or something. But you start playing it, and there's about five versions. They break down in the middle. They've completely different versions, you know. So you have to go through all that stuff. So you're sort of a and ring it as well. Well, I, yeah, we don't do so much of that. I mean, um, my friend, my Mark Powell, does a lot of that now. Does a lot of that for for different companies. He's very patient. He will sit through endless caravan album outtakes and things. And um, well, it takes patience. That does. Well, they're nineteen minute tracks. Yeah, and uh, and I'm a cover. I'm working with him on on Mike Oldfield stuff, and he's he's, he's found demos, all sorts of things. And they, you know, you might get a whole box. Because I suppose we're talking about an era where you, it's good that they kept the tapes, you know, and, and all companies did keep the tapes. But these tapes are one, they're falling apart now. Yes. Um, and two, you know, whoever wrote on them in the first place probably didn't make a, you know, they were more concerned with the take they were going to use for the single or the album. The rest of it was, if it's on the same reel, well. You know they're going to keep it, but they're not going to document what it was. You know, Phil, I ought to invite mm. you to take part in a notional radio project that I've been mm. thinking about for years. I wanted to do a series called "Where Is Everything," mm. because it, we, we sort of assume that everything's kept. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, it's not, is it, or it's not kept in the most accessible form? No, um, archiving has never been a priority amongst record companies. It never has. They keep well uh, the best one. I, I think Abbey Road. The fact that they've still got it is the fact that they're still in the same building. Yeah. And I think because records have changed buildings so many times, that's one of the problems. You know, they've they've just lost stuff. It's well, there was the story when they closed the Olympic Studios recently mm. that there was loads of stuff just chucked in a skip. Yeah. Outside. Yeah. You could pretty much get master tapes yeah. out on the street, yeah. which is an astonishing. Because we are talking about a time, uh, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies, you know, when no one envisaged CDs and back catalogue was uh, old recordings really unless someone like Time Life or Reader's Digest wanted to put a track on a best of whoever it was 
catalogue was really uh, confined to the occasional music for pleasure release. That's you know? true, isn't it? Really, mm. it was always it was catalogue was a bit of fun, wasn't yeah, it? It was e- even in the seventies. Yeah. You know, even when the Beatles. I mean, you look at it now. The Beatles' red and blue doubles, mm. which were the first kind of major. Mm. Hit reissues, were yeah. they? They're very shoddily done. Aren't they? Very poor, yeah. And well, um, there's no documentation or anything yeah. like that. Nice no. photographs, but that's yeah. all. And you would get best ofs. The best ofs usually came out while the, um, the the act was still going. You know, so you'd get a um, or greatest hits. You'd get you know, Diana Ross greatest hits. Yeah, but yeah. you um, to actually go back and look at someone's career, well, they didn't do that until the CDs come along. And so it was CD that did that, was it? Kind of, although because we started doing that when we had the Band Crusoe label, you know, we would then put co- uh, compilations together. Um, no one else did that. But I can remember going into um, Phonogram, as it was, and saying, look, I've got a list of rare tracks I'd like to license. And we were shown to an office, and there were two people in the office in a tiny room with some filing cabinets, and they that was the catalogue department. And they were just there to answer the phone in case, um, you know, readers, I just wanted to, to put something together, you know, summer hits... Um, so I came up with this list and said, well, well, this, this, and this, and they said, well, do we own it? And I said, well, I'm pretty sure you do. <laughs> it came out on Mercury or, <clears throat> said, well, have a look through those filing cabinets to see what you can find. So we were left to do that. And, um, I can remember we, we didn't know what to charge me either. I remember EMI, we, we spoke to them very early on <clears throat> and, uh, they said, well, what do you think's fair? <laughs> and I said, I don't know about... And I was thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to sell many of these. I said, I know, about 120 quid, something like that. He said, OK, we'll do it 120 quid. To license a track. An album. No, that was an album. An album. Yeah. And, and, and we did a sort of, you know, a, a sort of a, a contract of sorts. You know, it was their standard contract. So I gave, gave them the, you know, the check. And, well, you know, it was, it was they, they couldn't, they, there was no value in it. In those days, I remember Andrew Lawler, for instance, going in and licensing the birds and bands like that, you know. Well, you couldn't do that now. You couldn't go and say, we want the Birds album. So does now, has it changed so much that nowadays people think everything's worth a fortune? Well, they're very reluctant to let anything go, because, of course, if you're asking for it, it must be worse. Yes. You know, the fact that you've gone in and asked for something makes, you know... Um, but, you know, it's, uh, they, will, they will do deals. A lot of the record companies now are more, in, more interested in the digital rights anyway, so you can often go and get something if you, if you really want to put it out. As, right. a, as a hard copy, and, and they'll retain the digital rights. Um, but catalogue is changing a lot, you know. And we've 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 all seen um, just about every band. There's a few that haven't been done yet, and there's obviously reasons for that. But most stuff has been reissued. In so, one who, form who are the few that hasn't haven't been done? Um, well, interesting enough, um, there are there's deep catalogue, for instance, um, of uh, like traffic, for instance. Now that's we're working on at the moment. And the only reason that hasn't come out is because of the fact that there's been problems going on. Two of them have died, and there's just problems. People's estates get involved. Exactly, and, and, and legal stuff gets in. And it takes a long, long time to sort out. Um, otherwise, most things have been done. Um, but having said that, you know, the, um, the, the way the catalogue is going, it's, it's getting more interesting because we look at more high-end packaging. You know, these really elaborate things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and that's interesting to me, of course, because it's it's more work and more more time where I can spend uh, 
getting ever elaborate packages. Because you did this extraordinary Electra thing, I think. Did I did, did a great big box for Electra, yeah. It's unbelievable I, I door stopper thing. Yeah, with very luxurious padded booklet and stuff. Mm. And I've got one at home, and mm. I, look, I have to look at it and think, how many of these did they sell? Uh, in, you uh, did you pick the intake of breath? <laughs> um, not enough. Uh, unfortunately, um, I didn't exactly talk them into it because you know the, the, they were very willing to do it. <clears throat> but Jack Holzman, who's got a, a great reputation, who ran the label in the sixties and signed Queen in America, so he's you know he's they, in they, credit. They owe him one, yeah. <laughs> and um, he was very keen for it to happen, and. and um, to his credit, he only changed a few things on my original track listing, and the things he changed were only because he had bad memories of these. The one group, I remember, Clear Light, he, he said, "No, oh, they were always asking for money. They were dreadful, you know, bunch of drug takers." So, you know, he had a different view of it than I did. But um, the reason that it looked like a doorstop, there was a good reason for that. I was going to do a version on vinyl, and that was to house. I think four, no, was it eight double albums, you see, were, were going to be in that box. We never did the vinyl. So we ended up with but the But you had to buy the boxes. You, we, we had the boxes made to suit both formats. Yeah. So what are, the big, what are the big successful high-end reissues that people have done that have gone um, better than anybody expected? Um, let's think. They've, well, one case in point, it's... It's not too elaborate, but it's this new topic thing we did last summer for Topic Records, um, which is called Three Score and Ten, 70 years of the oldest independent label in the world. And uh, they sold out of their first pressing, which they didn't expect to do. And um, that's, that is a, su- sign of, a sign of success, but it's also annoying. Because you should have redo them all. Um, uh, and it shows that people are willing to, to pay out a lot of money for something which is really, really nice. You know, it's a kind of a, almost like that hand-built car thing, you know. They're willing to wait for it and pay a little bit because it's special and it's... You see, I can want. understand things like that. And I, the, I, I, I keep meaning to try and get hold of There's a legendary um, reissue of a load of gospel records that a guy did in the States. Oh, I have this. It's the the Moving Out of Babylon or whatever it's yeah. called. Is that what it's called? Goodbye Babylon. Goodbye Babylon. And it has, apparently, a piece of cotton. Yeah. <laughs> In every box, yes, yeah. which I thought was Raw incredibly cotton. cute touch. That's a very beautiful idea, and it's, it's beautiful. The whole thing's in a wood box with a sliding lid, it's wonderful. So, mm. you see, and I can appreciate stuff like that, yeah, stuff that's beautiful. But then I look at things that are kind of in the shape of guitars or you know, stuff like that, and I think, how, oh, how do you find it? Where do you <laughs> put it? What a tiresome thing that is. Do you, yeah. where do you stand I'm, on that? I, no, I'm, I'm I, I hate that, um, for those reasons. It's just to, to be gimmicky. You know, it's it's not right. There's a it's a it's interesting. It's an interesting subject because you know there are you know in the book world, for instance, there's always been lovely editions, you know, of uh, proper leather bound versions of whatever it is, and um, and really we're just kind of tapping into that area to be too gimmicky, unless it's something a bit unusual. I know there was a hat box with girl groups, um, <laughs> which was it was it was round. You could put it on top of something, and that worked. Um, so what do you think about my I've, I've got actually the um, uh, all the soundtracks of all the Hanna-Barbera uh, cartoons and it's called Hanna-Barbera's Picnic Basket mm. it's in the shape of a picnic basket actually with a handle is it made of wicker? It, it, sadly <laughs> not no. No. but it probably does, it won't stand up to too much rough treatment now the big yeah. question to me is you know, everybody understands the kind of constant fascination with the 60s and the 50s as well I suppose 
and the 70s. But is this, is this emphasis on nostalgia and repackaging and people wanting to buy souvenir editions, is there a future of it? Are people going to be doing it about music made now? In well, 30, 40 years' time. That, that is interesting because, of course, what I'm trying to do, and it's one of my, one of my kind of uh, little rules that I try to adhere to when I'm designing a new project and I'm always starting, I'm starting to be very exciting ones right now, is that I do like to think of what I'm doing as being the definitive version. But by doing the definitive version, then you're saying, well, that's it. Nothing comes after this because this is the final version. You will never need another whatever it is. Um, whether it's a Miles Davis, you know, or, or um, Fairport Convention, whatever it is. Now that does mean that um, unless something is discovered that that uh, makes that obsolete, then that is going to be the final version. But I think it's a it's a big market in the sense that there are enough people around to appreciate it. It's not a huge market, but there are enough of them to to keep that going. And of course, we it will happen for the the seventies a lot more. And, in, and it will happen for the 80s, I suppose, at some point, you know. So do you, because there's no sign of anybody, I don't know, repackaging everything by the Human League, for instance. I haven't seen that. No, it, it will happen. I mean, maybe, um, yeah, you, could, you, you can't imagine it now, can you, in like a Duran Duran sort of... Well, well it's, it's long uh, enough ago, isn't it? You know, but, quid, you know. But maybe people just don't have that kind of relationship with well, that, that music. that's another thing. See, now... We would we'll be laying on, on couches while we're talking about this because this is really getting into sort of and, and psychology. Sorry, some more more recent stuff has been packaged that way, like the Pixies, for instance. Yes, okay. Well, um, and I think it probably it's about the groups rather than the era. Yeah. I can understand it, the yeah. Pixies, because people are obsessive about the Pixies it's in a way that same. I don't think they are about Duran Duran. Yeah. No. And I think you could almost file Pixies with they've kind of there's a sort of sixties feel about that kind of the people who like that stuff also like. The pixies, they're like Neil Young. You yeah. know, they're, they're, there's a sort of a... They fit into that, that category, um, that compartment, whereas straight pop... Um, people, Those fans are less likely to be record collectors I as think well, so. And they have found, for instance, which is I, I was found fascinating, that uh, a lot of people obviously download now instead of buying. And I was fascinated to find out that when people download the, a new album, they often make space by deleting stuff they don't want anymore. So it's a bit, I, I think it's a bit like buying a magazine. You know, you get the new magazine, you chuck out the one, you put it in the recycling the last, the last months. Well, I don't, I keep them all, but, but <laughs> Obviously. because I'm that sort of person. But I, and I, when I heard this, I thought, of course, why wouldn't they do that? They're not, you know, you don't keep, you don't just keep backing up, backing up until you've got this enormous, well, they don't. And that's fascinating because that means that all they're doing is, is, is carrying around what they want to listen to right now. They delete, even if they bought it, they delete the old files. Really? Yeah. Now, that's that kind of thinks, well, in that case, there's never going to be a market for that kind of stuff. It's not, um, it's a different, it's, it's a different world. It's a disposable yeah. Yeah, attitude. Yeah. No, it's, it just mm. fascinates me as to whether, you know, 30 years' time, there'll be a huge, great Coldplay box set with, uh, you know, John, uh, you know, kind of radio sessions and an odd B-sides mm. and whatever. I don't know, you know, I don't it could be that nowadays, when bands are around, they put out so much stuff that they don't create rarities in the same way. You know what I mean? That, that's a good point. Everything's put yeah, out yeah, absolutely all yeah, the time, and they go out of their way, for instance, to to put out multiple single releases, each one with a different couple of extra tracks on. So, you know, if you and, want and, it, you, and, if you, you want it, and because of digital, nothing is rare anymore. 
That's, that's true. Nothing ages, Nothing is it? rare yeah. anymore. Mm. Is that the same conclusion we've come to today about <laughs> things that disappear because of the internet? Yeah, the Underground <laughs> disappeared. <laughs> yeah. And nothing is rare anymore. Rare has disappeared. Rare has gone. Please discuss on the website <laughs> if people want to people want to pitch into that. So, Phil, what are you working on at the moment? Well, we're um, we're, we're carrying on with uh, Mike Oldfield's catalogue. We we did the big tubular bells box last summer, and uh, that went very well. We did various versions, but the big all singing dancing one was uh, was a lovely to work on. And now we're doing we're, doing, we're working our way through them. So we've got the next two, which we're just working on now. With, um, so you're into Hergis Ridge and Omadorn and Yes, like which, um, it's interesting, it, it, you can, it does divide people. I've, people <laughs> actually said to me, I prefer those to, 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 to Tubular Bells. Others uh, say they were just Tubular Bells parts two and three. But um, uh, they, fascinating, because we've got the demos, we've got all sorts of things, and, um, and he's great to work with, even though he's in the Bahamas. And, um, oh, he said uh, <laughs> Mike's still doing all right, is he? Oh, absolutely. He's yeah. in the Bahamas. Yeah, <laughs> and... Um, uh, yeah, we work all sorts of things. I mean, I, I have to sort of rack my brains. Um, we're, we're starting work on um, some... It's not exactly hush-hush, but we are starting work on uh, some uh, Sandy Denny, uh, a, a great big box. This is uh, everything she ever worked on, and we've, I've got the archives, pictorial archives. See, I just find this annoying. I already have a Sandy Denny, Denny <laughs> box. <laughs> and now it's obsolete. <laughs> well, no, it's... Uh, this will be... The definitive, everything she So did. was the last one when it came out. Yeah, it was. It's <laughs> about washing whiter. Yeah, I know. And um, it is, yeah. It, it, but what can you do? Um, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan, you So this is... I, it, I, I'm a fan. And uh, so I'm a quite a good... Uh, so, you know, if I like it, then other people don't like it type of thing, you know. And uh, I must admit, I do think, well, hang on. Is there enough new on this to make it worthwhile? But... There is. There's a Even if it's just for you. Stacks of stuff, yeah. So, the, mm. one of the things that's really important in projects like that is not mm. just the music, it's the kind of the ephemera, the, oh, the yeah. pictures. And, I am going, and oh, I'm going out well over the top on this. I mean, it's going to be a big book, 12 inch square type of thing. You know, it's going to be. Um, I mean, we've got, we've even got. For instance, we found the slicks to the album that didn't come out. That became Explain the slicks. Uh, slick is, a, is a, just a printed piece of card before it was made up into an album sleeve. It got as far as being printed, you see, but not made up. What, so she had a record that was supposed to come out? And yeah, it was a record called Gold Dust. It was coming oh. out before Rendezvous. Uh, Rendezvous was delayed for about 18 months, two years before it came out. Um, and eventually, she put new tracks on it. She put things like um, uh, Candle in the Wind, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was never on the, on the original uh, version. Um, so where have you found these proofs? Well, we found them because... Uh, the uh, her husband uh, at the time, Trevor, Trevor Lucas, um, remarried, and um, his wife uh, survived him and, and keeps the the archive intact. She keeps everything still. Uh, lovely lady, and she's um, given us access to the whole lot, including oh books of all the lyrics or the all handwritten stuff. So she's wow. got this stuff. So this is yeah. the this is the widow of yeah. The ex-husband That's of right. the artist. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, Extraordinary uh, the way these things end it's up. It's lovely that she's kept everything, and um, it's not. I mean, in, in all, it, it fits into a big box, a big cardboard box. But it's nevertheless, there's stuff there. I was going through it last weekend, and um, you know, wedding photos, and no one's ever seen them. You know, they're um, 
Sandy doing the ironing, you know, that right. kind of thing. But uh, all sorts of things, you know. So you, you must spend quite a bit of your time doing this, dealing with either musicians who were, mm. you know, or people who were mus- musicians mm. 40 years ago, or... Mm their descendants or you know they, they, that must be must call for very sensitive handling that that side of things because obviously if somebody says oh you look at the family family album you think mm. yes please it's true you can uh, end up um you know they they or rather you didn't you know i i, I can i can be uh, enthusing about something and, oh this is fantastic or oh, no rather you didn't use that um I mean, we used to get it with bands like The Hollies, for instance. I remember, I remember Tony saying, oh, you can't use that photo, why not? Because um, that's my uh, first girlfriend and my wife does not want to see a picture of her. Yep. <laughs> I think, but it's a great shot, you know. No, can't use it. <laughs> so, um, you know, so you always got to edit the history. Yeah, you've got to be aware of, of that. I was once involved uh, years ago uh, in doing a, a Paul McCartney tour programme uh, when he'd just married Heather, you know, so it was a few years after Linda had died, and we they gave us a load of stuff to use in it, and you know, loads of old pictures of Linda, and there was a piece about Linda McCartney cooking and so forth, you know. So she was featured in, mm. and now I was with McCartney, and he was looking at, <laughs> looking over the proofs, and he noticed this, you know, and then he said eventually, I tell you what, three of Linda, five of Heather. <laughs> that was the quota. You weren't allowed to get <laughs> the quota. Well, which I can entirely see his point. You know, yeah. I'm sure it'd be obviously very different now. You know, but yeah. uh, but you must have to deal with this sort of thing. Now we were talking before we started recording mm. about uh, you know this group, the Mike Stewart Span that yeah. you told me about when I was mm. researching this piece about uh, rare records, and you said, oh, well, you know, seven hundred quid for a single by the Mike Stewart Span came out mm. in 1968 or something, and I'd I'd never heard of them. Mm. So. You must come across these groups who've, who've found a, a sort of celebrity in, in a very small way, 40 years after they yes. made the record. How do you find them? Well, they, they, um, interesting enough, that, that particular... Well, when, in, when I was doing the Bam Crusoe label in the 80s, uh, I, I wanted to put out some tracks on there by Mike Stewart's band. And I can remember the day I was looking through the Radio Times just flicking through seeing and I noticed this it, name leapt off the page Stuart Hobday as a producer on a Saturday programme with uh, Brian Matthews and I thought hang on Brian, Stuart Hobday he was the singer in Mike Stewart's fan now obviously I knew that because so you've got that kind of retentive I've memory that, I've got that sort of so I, I thought well why not so I, I phoned you know BBC and, and they put me through and he thought it was a wind-up. He thought it was one of his mates. Because I was saying, you know, are you Stuart Hobday of the Mike Stewart Span? He said, uh, who is this? <laughs> what do you want? And obviously, once he found out I was just a... I wanted to put out this stuff. He was really nice. And he invited me up and we'd met. And he he couldn't believe that anyone was interested. And that was the beginning. You know, that's when people like that realise that we do remember this stuff. And uh, it, it was lovely because I, I'm a, you know, a fan of that of those records anyway but also they changed their name a little later became Leviathan on Electra and, uh, and I collect Electra as you probably realise I've got probably the best Electra collection in, in the country I've, I'm near perfect now from 53 uh, to 74 near um, perfect yeah. I'm missing about 20 albums and uh, a handful of singles but um, so it was quite important anyway we, you know, so one thing led to another and, and you know and, and we keep in touch and 
he lets me know if something's happening, you know. But but then there are other people as well. That, I mean, for instance, another friend of mine uh, who I see quite regularly, a guy called Ali McKenzie. Now, Ali was in a band called The Birds, the British Birds. The guitarist was uh, Ronnie Wood. And they made four singles, uh, revered by collectors of R&B and, and everything, as being the best exponents of, of that style of the time. You know, better than the pretty things, certainly better than the stones at the time. Um, and Ali takes a really kind of, uh, you know, kind of a, an interesting slant on it, you know, in that it was something he did when he was in his late teens. It's a bit like us going on holiday to Butlins and having fond memories of the of the holiday. That's kind of how he looks upon it, you know. I mean, the fact that Ronnie Wood now is, um, is a rolling stone and everything that's happened is... Is kind Doesn't of water under the on. bridge almost, and um, so so you know you you do get these people now, and uh, occasionally you you meet people who are still trying to make it in the music business. They're they're the tragic ones, the ones who are still well, still thinking it's going to happen, still think it's going to a hit is round the corner, and there are quite a lot of those. Well, they're unsinkable optimists, musicians are, aren't yes. they? As a breed, that's and they often don't realise why they were popular then and aren't now. They don't get it. They don't get the, the, the transition. What was it I was doing then that I'm not? I can play better now. So why am I more popular now? You know, and why am I playing pubs? I think all musicians have a kind of blind spot where their own appeal is. Hmm. I think so too. Yeah. Really? It's yeah. a magic that they can't. They can't sort of understand what it is. They just accept it, I suppose, and. I've, I've slowly come round to the, the the point of view that they're just wired differently. Mm. I think musicians they're not mm. they're not like you and I. Mm. You know they're, they're 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 obeying different different internal yeah. commands. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> they just they're just driven. You know it's well it's like you know it's like actors I suppose. You know it's Laurence Olivier famously said about actors. He said if you if you want to be an actor you're an actor. Mm. If you're not an actor you didn't want it hard enough. Mm. And I think it's probably the same with musicians, yeah. you know. Uh, it is. Uh, I always find it fascinating that, um, for instance, in, in Ray Davis's book, his autobiography, he, he, he kind of dwells a bit on the time when the hits stopped, you know, after the 60s, and um, you got, with the exception of Lola, the hits, they literally stopped overnight. He would have a, a top ten hits, and then they stopped. And he couldn't understand it, because the, the, the hit, the, the record that wasn't a hit was Days. Which is a lovely, lovely record. It's a terrific single in one way, and um, Kirsten McCall did a, a yeah. great version. But it couldn't say because what was it about the others that got them to number one, and what was it about this that it stalled? And then from that point on, they stopped. And, and the it, harder you try, the worse yeah. it gets. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so how do you explain that? Yeah. So, I mean, the pressure of, 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 of getting hit after hit must have been enormous. I think it's stopping for most people. I think they have ferocious bursts of activity where they, everything mm. they do is a hit, like Ray mm. Davis and like John Fogerty or something like that. Mm. And the moment they take any time off, it's mm. gone. And they can't. It's all about momentum. John Fogerty's a classic case, isn't he? Because he, he, he gets back nowadays and tries to make records that sound like those records. Yeah. And he's clearly he's got huge respect for those original records. But they don't sound no, like no, those original records. There was something in the water back then, you well, know. It could have been. It was a it was a muse that, that has eluded them. It's it's literally flown, and uh, they can't get it. There's, there's some tragic cases in the past. I remember um, uh, one one great example would be um, Tim Hardin. Yeah. Now, Tim Hardin made um, three 
enormously successful records which were plundered for cover versions. It was, they were full of great songs if like I Wrote Carpenter. And then he lost it. He completely lost it. He could not write a song. And he couldn't explain it. He, he turned to drugs and, it, and the whole thing but was tragic. But it just... You see the same used. thing with footballers, don't you? <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> no, you do. They wake up one morning and no, they no, can't no, kick no, a ball. And that, I think very often it's when they start to think about it. Yeah. Maybe it's, you think it too hard. You, you know, yeah. the, these things, they have to be done completely instinctively. Yeah. You know, and they're very often at their best when people have no time mm. and they're young and they're just... Mm shakes in to try and keep up with everything around yeah. them. And then when they're allowed a bit of time for reflection, yeah. it doesn't help, yeah. actually. You know, that it tends to flourish in, in, in very tight yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a fascinating part of music, and I've always thought that. You know. Well, if there wasn't the idea of, you know, the, if the careers didn't all kind of have a glory period and then followed by a, a long, long decline, you wouldn't have such fantastic business in doing do reissues. Because every time we buy a box set, we think, I'm going to reawaken that moment when I first liked this mm. thing. Mm. And it's going mm. to sound, even briefly, as magical mm. as it did then. Mm. And I'm not yeah. going to say whether it does or whether it doesn't, you know, but that's kind of, that's sort of the promise of reissues, isn't it? You know, that you go yeah. back to your 15-year-old self for a while. Yeah. So, Phil, well, yeah. thanks very much for coming in. What's, it, what, what's the most valuable record you brought here? I, I wonder. Pinch it. Let's have, have a quick look through. Well, that one you've got on top there is, is quite valuable. This is Tony, the Tony Jackson group. Tony Jackson, who was, uh, was in The Searchers. That's right. And then, uh, uh, he, and then started his own group. Yeah. Well, the, the, this is a Spanish single. It, no it, Portuguese. It, it, Portuguese. The, 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 their uh, manager split them down the middle. The thinking was, we've got a hit band here. Let's have two. But the singer is the, is, is, is the leader. Right, split them in two. We've got two hit bands. Of course, it backfired. But that one, uh, he went to, to Portugal and he recorded that EP in Portugal with his new group. And it's a fantastic EP and it goes for a lot of money. Um, that's about a thousand or something. Whoa, good grief. Um, <laughs> I better put it down. Yeah, that, well, that's the Mike's your expansive. That went for two, what, 700 and something. But the next one will probably go for more. Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, even things like that now, the... Um, Mixed Up Confusion by Bob, Bob Dylan. Dylan. Yeah. On CBS. first electric... How right, yes. Um, and the old adverts on the back. The Sounds of Success on CBS. Gene Pitney mm. and uh, yeah. Barbara Streisand. Only came out of one country in the world, and that was in the Benelux countries. That It was withdrawn everywhere else, but for some reason, they managed to get their copy out before it was withdrawn. So, Mixed Up for Confusion so came out. Um, What's they, that worth? I don't know. They're getting harder to find. Um Probably not that much, two or three hundred, maybe. Two or three hundred. Yeah. So, so run upstairs in your attic, <laughs> yeah. listeners, and see if you've got yeah. a copy. This is probably these two, these three are probably the most in this pile. I mean, that's the French Pink Floyd EP with a different version of Interstellar Overdrive. Wow, um, probably about fifteen hundred. That's the first fifteen hundred pounds. That's the first Pink Floyd single as an A label oh, right. in its original promo. Sleeve. And wow. it's pristine. It's, that's as new. That's that is as new. And that's what ninety sixty six or something like that. Sixty seven. Yeah. That's so. That's about two and a half thousand. Two and a half mm. thousand. Can I touch yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably okay. wipe your hand. That's quite hard. That's quite hard to get as well. That's Sid Barrett's first single, only single. Octopus, uh, which they on the Harvest which, label, which Harvest uh, thought they would get a hit. <laughs> yeah. What were they thinking? <laughs> Hope springs um, eternal. And 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 that goes for a lot of money now um, people can't find copies of that that's it didn't sell surprisingly it wasn't a hit um, 
but that's uh, that's hard to get. But that, that, yeah, this is probably this Pink Floyd single. That that is, they are hard to get there. Fantastic. That was only there would have been a few copies of that, and surviving sleeves are even are even especially in that condition. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, nice and nice and clean. Right, take them home. I can't be responsible <laughs> for them. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.